A Canadian Pacific Airlines DC-8 landed at Sydney and is taxiing on the runway when a vibration is felt on the plane. What caused this flight to have its tail fin destroyed? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm, today we, we have... have... I am back, Andrew. Yep. <laughs> Andrew's Christy's back. Christy's down for the count today. Yeah, she's super sick, and that's my fault. <laughs> <laughs> and it potentially originally was my fault, so... I don't know. I don't know any of that. But I was sick starting Monday, and I was sick all week. And actually, I feel phenomenal now. But, but then Christy got sick about... Thursday into Friday. Yeah, started not feeling good. And, and then we yesterday and today were Sunday. really rough. Yeah, yep. yesterday was rough. Today's and then rough. Today's even worse. So I still sound a little off, but actually I feel really good. So I shouldn't have too many issues. Yeah, we should be okay. There's a, there's definitely something going on. Oh yeah, there's right lots now. of things going the, around. It's like my mom said it was she potentially like has the flu. Like it might just be the flu. Yeah. My mom thinks it's the flu because we tested negative for COVID. But I think it's either RSV or the flu, because they're all very, very similar. But the flu definitely seems more along the lines of what we got going on. Yeah, I never had a fever or body aches. I just had a head cold, right. which See, is really annoying. Both of us, Christy and I, had really bad fevers during all of this at some point in time. Again, mine was now days ago. Mine was the last time I had a fever was Wednesday. It's now Sunday. So yeah, all so she, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, might Sunday just now. Have okay. The flu. Yeah. So, so good thoughts towards Christy. <laughs> yeah. She'll probably be back for the next one. Yes. Thoughts hopefully. and prayers. <laughs> yeah. Send your thoughts and prayers. <laughs> Housekeeping stuff. Make sure you submit your stories. I realize yeah. we haven't put out a story episode. In yeah, a while. We're going to get to that. It's they're ready. A, it's just kind of that time of year. It's just, we're really busy and Christmas is coming up and like everything is going wrong. So everything has been going on too. like, you've had concerts, we've had holiday parties for oh, work. We've God, had it's been zoom calls. We've had everything just to keep this from being a thing. Yeah. So please keep in mind, we do have the October episode ready to go. We just haven't actually like done it yet. Yeah. Woohoo. And then we probably have one that's good to go for November slash December. Yeah. But again, it's like we have next week will be a lot more open because I'm off of work. Right. And so I can be here <laughs> more right. often. And then we don't have band next week and all that stuff. So right. it is coming. Those of you who have submitted stories and you're like, what the heck? Yeah. We it's, know. <laughs> it's coming. I promise. It's on its way. We know. And then other stuff. I mean, check out the Patreon like always. Yep. And if you have answers to the trivia questions, I might give those at the end of the episode today. So. Yeah. All right. I, I don't know. I think that's it. You have anything else? I don't really have anything else right now. I'm sure I've thought of something recently, but it's not on my mind right now. So. All right. So what are we covering today, Nick? Today, we're going to start with Trans-Australian Airlines Flight 592. Thanks to our listener, Chris Doc JT from Facebook. Yeah. For recommending this episode. This is definitely kind of an odd one. So when I say it's odd, you'll see why a little bit later on, but there's not even a Wikipedia page for this one. However, there is a full report and the story is actually really interesting. So I'm glad you recommended this one. I got to have a little bit of fun and dive into this one a bit. So this is going to be a little bit of a, a strange episode, be it that Christy's not around. So, but we also have a lot to go through here in the story first. So the structure of this might be a little different, but we also have a guest. So yes. 
but yep. I also have no idea what's happening. Right. So, so I, have, that too. I have two people now who have no idea what's happening, and I am the only one. <laughs> I wrote the whole thing. Well, almost the whole thing. Christy wrote a good paragraph in some of the analysis, and then I did the rest. A lot more. <laughs> well, listen, cut me some slack. I got dementia. Yeah. yeah. I got dementia. <laughs> All right. So this accident occurred on January 29th of 1971. This was a Boeing 727-100 with the tail number Victor Hotel-Tango Juliet Alpha. This was a flight from Sydney, Australia, to Perth, Australia. Be it that this is Trans-Australian Airlines, it kind of makes sense. I would hope so, yeah. (laughs) Captain for this flight was Warren James. He was 50 years old. At the time, he had 19,874 hours total, of which 4,100 hours were on the 727. So he had quite a bit of experience overall and on the airplane. He was quite experienced. First officer is Douglas Spires, or Spears. It's spelt Spires, S-P-I-E-R-S. Related to Britney Spears? I know, right? (laughs) (laughs) No, not even spelt the same. He was 28 years old at the time. He had 2,953 hours total, of which 525 were on the 727. So he's a little bit of a newbie. Not super newbie, but newer. The flight engineer was James Ryan. I'm not even going to get into how many James there were. Because if their first name wasn't James, their middle name probably was. And I didn't write middle names. Or their last name, because that was... We'll get there. But anyways. The flight engineer was James Ryan. He was 28 years old as well. And he had 2,872 hours total, of which 762 were on the 727. So he had a very similar number of hours total to the first officer. And he had a little more hours on the 727. Basically like 200 more hours. 250. In Sydney, the aircraft had been loaded with 84 passengers and 8 crew for the flight to Perth. 9.29 p.m., the flight crew contacted the ground controller to identify themselves and request taxi clearance from the parking apron to the takeoff runway. The ground controller instructed the flight to taxi 2 and hold short of runway 16 via taxiways Lima and taxiway Gulf. As the flight taxied to the hold short of the runway, the flight crew radioed for their flight clearance, so their departure clearance, all of the clearance to their en route. Right. To Perth. The air traffic controller cleared the flight on their flight plan. At 9.33 p.m. and 47 seconds, the aircraft reached the hold short point for runway 16 and came to a stop, at which time the flight crew switched frequencies and informed the tower controller that they were ready for takeoff. The tower controller instructed the flight to wait for the landing aircraft to pass, then line up and wait on the runway. So there's an airplane on the approach for runway 16 as well. That's coming in, yeah. Right. So they're holding short of the runway. They're not on the runway. They're waiting. So they wait, they've been told now to wait for that airplane to pass, and then they can line up onto the runway, but they still have to wait for takeoff clearance. The flight crew acknowledged this. The other aircraft passed the runway threshold and subsequently touched down normally. The flight crew of Flight 592 then positioned the aircraft onto the runway center line and waited for takeoff clearance from air traffic control. The tower controller watched as the landing aircraft began to turn right as instructed off of the runway. As soon as the turn was seen by the tower controller, He cleared flight 592 for takeoff at 9.35 p.m. and 38 seconds, and the flight crew acknowledged the takeoff clearance. They then began their takeoff roll normally. They picked up speed normally as they reached a rotation speed of 131 knots. The captain pulled back on the yoke. Simultaneously, the captain noticed that there was something strange on the runway ahead of them. He determined that the object was too close to avoid by aborting the takeoff, so he opted to continue a normal takeoff without over-rotating the aircraft so as to avoid a dangerous aerodynamic situation. Talk a little bit later on about what that means, but the 727 had a few things going for it that it really required having a pretty normal takeoff. So, I don't agree or disagree with the situation. I mean, in any aircraft, despite what it may end up being, right? you want to make sure that 
it's a normal takeoff. Right. So if he over-rotated, basically two things would happen. One, he would strike the tail. And two, he could potentially stall. Yes. Prevent the airplane from actually climbing up. Which we have covered both issues happening before. Right. So. so he hoped to clear this object once airborne. The aircraft lifted, and just moments later, a sizable noise and a heavy jolt were felt through the whole fuselage of the aircraft. Regardless to that, the aircraft continued to climb out normally. Hmm. A short time later, a DC-9, different airplane altogether, that was to land behind them, was suddenly told to go around by the tower controller. I mean, literally, like... 727 was airborne, and just a moment later, this DC-9 was told to go around. Simultaneously to this, it became apparent quickly that the A-system hydraulics on Flight 592 were losing pressure quickly, and some systems began to be affected. The flight crew knew that they had struck the object on the runway, so they reported this to the tower controller. Fortunately, the backup hydraulic systems were functioning normally, and all flight control surfaces seemed to be functioning well enough, at least, to maintain controlled flight. The flight crew informed the tower of their intention to return. However, they needed to dump fuel first, so the tower cleared the flight to proceed to an offshore location for fuel dumping. So they went out over the ocean, dumped fuel, because the airplane was heavy. You're supposed to dump fuel over the ocean. Yep, you are. If anyone remembers the incident that happened mm-hmm. with Delta Flight in California, yep, there's a reason a why yep. they need to dump fuel over the ocean. Yeah, that's Is it good stuff. for the ocean? No, no. But it's better than it being dropped on a bunch of people. Right, and depending on how you do it, man... It, if you have the ability to do it at a high altitude, they recommend it because that allows the fuel to vaporize, atomize, and it usually doesn't make it down to the surface. Right. So that's a little bit of a different thing. But in this case, the airplane was remaining low, and yeah, they were pretty much just dumping straight into the ocean. Sucks. But ultimately, it's not a lot of fuel that they dumped because they didn't dump for too long, actually. The flight crew acknowledged and did so, dumping fuel for some time before returning to the airfield for a safe landing on runway 16 at 10.16 p.m. and 30 seconds. So, they landed on the same runway that they took off from, Mm -hmm. that they hit the thing on. Right. So the thing was gone when they got back? Well, what was found upon the aircraft's return was pretty stunning. We'll talk a bit about that in a minute. It's a ghost. It's it's the ghost! In the meantime, (laughs) let's talk about Canadian Pacific Airlines Flight 301. Yep, you pretty much figured it out. Yeah, there was an airplane (laughs) on the runway? What do you know? January 29th of 1971. This is a Douglas DC-863. This is the longer version of the DC-8. We've talked about DC-8s plenty of times. Very long version with the older engines, kind of cigar-type engines, but a really long fuselage this airplane had. For the longest time, this was the longest single-aisle airplane until the 757-300 came about. This is a four-engine airplane with quite some range, though. So this airplane, and we'll talk about it, it was doing a pretty long flight, too. Its tail number was Charlie Foxtrot, Charlie... Papa Quebec, and it was flying from Vancouver to Sydney, which is a long flight. Yeah. I can tell you, even on today's schedule, that's about a 14 to 15 hour flight. Ugh. Ugh. (laughs) No thanks. So this is quite a distance to cover. The captain for this flight was Charles McGrath. He was 40 years old. At the time, he had 10,723 hours total, of which 5,277 hours were on the DC-8. The first officer was Walter Mood, or Mood, I couldn't determine, it's M-U-D-E. I can determine if it's mud or mood. I don't know. Mooday? Mooday. <laughs> Mooday. Is there a little umlau on the E? Yeah, no, there's nothing. He was 37 years old at the time. He had 5,195 hours total, of which 2,291 hours were on the DC-8. So his total hours were less than the captain had on the DC-8. Yes. <laughs> By not much, actually. But the captain had a lot of hours on the DC-8. 
And quite a few hours overall. I mean, the first officer did too. I he mean, had quite a few hours overall and the DCA. Yeah. Blink at like over 2,000 hours on an aircraft. Right, no. That's it's... not like, oh, I just started, you know, we've covered people that have only been on it for 30 hours. Yeah, exactly. So, it's like, I mean, no, it's nothing to blink at at all. No, it's for sure. It's a lot of hours. The second officer was Arnold Bjorndal. He was 27 years old at the time. He had 1,494 hours total, of which 534 were on the DC-8. So he didn't have a lot of hours in the DC-8 or a lot of hours overall, but he was second officer, so he was kind of performing as a relief. Uh. On top of that, there was a Czech captain in this airplane. His name was Louis Ellert. He was 51 years old at the time. He had 20,381 hours total, of which 5,000 were on the DC-8. So he was also a very experienced captain. He was sitting in a jump seat in the rear of the cockpit because he was there actually to route check the captain and the first officer was doing some regular checks as well. So basically he was performing multiple duties of checking both pilots, both flying pilots at that time. The aircraft was arriving into Sydney with 136 passengers and 12 crew. So a decent amount of people. 9.30 p.m. in 20 seconds, the flight crew made initial contact with the tower controller at Sydney, reporting that they had just descended through 3,000 feet at the West Pimble locator on the ILS approach for runway 16. Instrument landing system approach, so they're just doing a pretty normal approach, and they're just reporting a certain point along said ILS approach. Right. The tower controller acknowledged and instructed the flight to report again once reaching the outer marker. So on an ILS approach, we've talked about this before, but there's an outer, a middle, and an inner marker, and they're all pretty close to the runway, actually. They're not that far along the approach. So there's still some distance from the outer marker, which is the furthest from the threshold. Then you have middle, then you have inner. So they've been now requested to come talk to them again, talk to the tower controller again once they reach the outer marker. Right. The flight crew did so a short time later. At that time, the flight was cleared to land on runway 16 by the tower controller. The aircraft crossed the threshold and then landed normally. As the airplane was slowing down and nearing the end of its landing run, the tower controller instructed the flight crew to, quote, take taxiway right, call on 121.7, end quote, which is the ground frequency. So they're being told, take taxiway to the right, and then call the ground frequency. Right. The flight crew acknowledged this instruction and subsequently switched frequencies. It had been raining at Sydney, so the runway surfaces were wet. The captain slowed the aircraft down to a very slow speed before starting to make a left turn off of the center line around the area of Taxiway India, which exits from the right side of the runway. Okay. The captain then began swinging the nose of the aircraft slowly and fully around to the right to face back down the runway, 180 degrees from their landing direction. Now taxiing back down the runway. <laughs> wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Hold on. What? <laughs> doesn't doesn't uh-huh. sound all right. Wait, wait a minute, wait. I, I knew you. What? Uh-huh. <laughs> so they're going the wrong way? Yeah, <laughs> they just turned, they just did a 180 degree turn, which doesn't make sense. I, what? They're, they're, playing, they're are, playing a game of chicken. There are, yeah, they, <laughs> they are. They lost the game of chicken. Uh-huh. There are so many things. <laughs> Here in a little while that are going to make you really mad. Oh, God. What would cause someone to to do that? I Well. Okay. Listen, Linda, I don't understand the 180 degree turn thing. I realize you probably left some stuff out. A little bit. A little bit. What? Yep. Well, let's continue and we'll get there. So now taxiing back down the runway with the other aircraft in sight, with its landing lights pointed directly at them, the captain soon noticed that it appeared that the other aircraft was approaching quite quickly. 
<laughs> At which time, he increased the engine power and began steering the airplane left toward the east side of the runway, which is the side that the taxiway is on. Since they're facing 180 degrees the other direction now, what 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 they were told to do is exit right, now right. is on their left. Right. So he's kind of now turning to the left. However, there's not really a taxiway there. The flight crew watched as the approaching aircraft rotated a short distance away and then lifted from the runway. The aircraft seemingly passed overhead very low. Simultaneously to that, however, a jolt was felt through the aircraft with the captain believing that the nose wheel had exited the runway into the grass or was running over a raised runway light on the edge of the runway. So or it just wasn't got hit right. So by the other aircraft. <laughs> so it wasn't like an earth-shattering jolt, but it was enough where it was like noticeable. Yeah. And he thought that he had just, you know, exited the runway so, hard. I just did a little oopsie. Yeah. Oopsie. So did the gear of the other flight like hit the tail or something? We'll get there. Okay. Regardless, the danger seemingly now having passed, the captain steered the airplane back toward the center line of the runway. The ground controller, having seen the landing light sweeping in a turn as the airplane had turned toward the runway edge, had assumed that the aircraft was actually on taxiway Victor, which runs parallel okay. to the runway, and now was turning onto taxiway Alpha back toward the runway. This is all at night, in the dark. So well, that's with not rain. helpful. That is yeah. not helping. So he sees the landing light flash as they're swinging back, Okay, and he thinks that this airplane is now turning onto a taxiway to head back toward the runway. Now, that, of course, catches his attention, and he's freaking out a little bit about that. So at that time, the ground controller instructed Flight 301 to hold position. Stop. Just stop where you are. He then instructed Flight 301 to, quote, continue straight ahead along the taxiway and cross runway 07, assuming that the airplane was on taxiway Alpha. Right. That was not the case. No. <laughs> they are still currently on the runway. The flight crew, however, still being on the runway, were watching as the landing lights of an approaching DC-9 were about to land on the runway. Oh, Jesus. The flight crew called the ground controller to confirm that there was an aircraft approaching them on landing, at which time the ground controller was like, what the heck are you talking about? What? Where are you? <laughs> so what, what happened? They asked 301 to confirm if they were on taxiway Alpha, to which the flight crew responded horrifyingly, Quote, negative, we're on the runway, we're cleared to backtrack on the runway. No, we're not! End quote. <laughs> At no point were you supposed to be anywhere backtracking on said runway. Don't know where they got that from. So, oh boy. <laughs> immediately upon this revelation, the tower controller instructed the DC-9 to go around. Simultaneously, the ground controller gave Flight 301 new instructions to vacate the runway via the next taxiway to their left. The flight crew acknowledged and began taxiing again, now heading toward a runway exit. So, because there's two different frequencies going on there, the tower controller had to tell the DC-9 to go around. Right. And the ground controller is still talking to the DC-8, telling them to right. now exit the yes, runway. please vacate the place <laughs> that, yes, please do not be on the active runway. Right. The flight crew acknowledged and began taxiing again, now heading toward a runway exit. Just moments later, the ground controller passed on a message that the departing 727 was reporting having struck them during takeoff. The flight crew were surprised, but they had not noted any anomalies with their aircraft whatsoever. So they continued to their parking location. They taxied all the way over and parked. Upon arrival at the parking location, however, they discovered something shocking. Let's talk about the damage. Yeah, I was <laughs> like, let's see what happened. The damage to the DC-8 was found first as it arrived at the parking position before the 727 ever returned to the airfield. What was found upon parking was a large portion of the upper tail fin, the vertical stabilizer, and rudder were gone, torn from the airplane completely. About eight and a half feet of it, in fact. Yeah, see, told you. <laughs> <laughs> they hit the tail. Yep, eight and a half feet of it were just gone. Is uh, DC-8 a T-tail? No. 
Okay. PC-8 is our standard tail, so it's just okay. a straight tail. The top so, of it was gone. The plane can no longer fly, is nope, what that nope, means. it's not going anywhere. So the top of that tail was found beside the runway. <laughs> yeah, huh. Taxiway India was found to be covered in parts, because that was immediately next to where all of this happened. Right. When the 727 arrived back at Sydney, the damage was found was even more stunning, so much so that the aircraft's safe return seemed pretty miraculous, to be honest. The fuselage skin on the underside or the belly of the 727, from just forward to the leading edge of the right wing, leading all the way to the mid-tail area on the belly, was ripped open, heavily, and dented, and scraped, exposing all of the components underneath. <laughs> yeah. Many of which were also heavily damaged, including the hydraulic A system, an air conditioning pack and duct, the right main landing gear door, which was gone completely. Oh, yeah. And some wiring. So the right main landing gear door, actually, all of its hydraulic and everything were all sheared completely from the airplane, but the main gear remained intact. I was going to say, at least the gear didn't, like, get sheared off. Right. So the inboard wheel or the windboard tire on the right main landing gear had struck the tail and had a gash and was deflated upon landing. But the outboard, so the one out away right. from the fuselage, had a gash but wasn't deflated. So okay. it actually managed to survive landing, and that's why they had a safe landing. This was a very significant amount of damage to the fuselage of the 727, but fortunately damage was avoided to the engines, wings, tail, landing gear, and all control surfaces, allowing the aircraft to make a safe return. Perhaps even more remarkably... Though, the fuselage had been heavily punctured by the tail of the DC-8. There were no injuries at all on the 727. In fact, there were no injuries at all between either airplane. All 220 passengers and 20 crew between the two airplanes were uninjured and safe. Yeah, well, it's... That's wholesome. It's probably... It is. But it's probably good, though, that they did a normal takeoff. Because uh-huh. if they had tried to lift too early uh-huh. and they tail struck... Yep. And didn't get off the ground in time? That could have been way worse. So we have a lot to cover there because that came up. <laughs> I bet it did. There's a lot of questions that happen when you have two this airplanes sitting on the ground that also are Also is for Tenerife, which Tenerife had a close situation. Not exactly uh-huh. the same, but similar. You're correct. For different reasons, obviously. But So there are some pictures in the report. Of the damage. (laughs) That tail is gone. There's the missing eight and a half feet of the tail of the Canadian Pacific. What are you talking about? Just slap some duct tape on it. It'll be good. Here is is the massive gouge. Oh, in the... Just... 727. Just next to the wing of the 727. Oh, jeez. This is the landing light at the root. Like, this is the wing. This is the fuselage. This is where they meet. That's the gouge. Oh, God. And here's some more pictures of the damage of the underside of the 727. They're so lucky. Oh, man. They were They're so, so, so close, lucky. So close to having oh, man. been in a complete disaster. This is a rough... Here's another just visual representation that they made of roughly just the moment before impact. The yeah. line at which the tail was broken and the angle at which the 727 was departing. So... That's all I have for this story. Do you want okay. me to read the analysis or you want to try to read I, it? I can read it. Okay. I so, wrote most of this, so I will talk to it as we go through it a little bit. Yeah. 
I figured. So I'm going to read the analysis, which I know is very strange and different. Yeah, it is a little different. I have no idea exactly what happened. So I will be reacting to it as I read to it. So which that's is good. Interesting. I wrote it as best as I could. <laughs> like uh, Christy. How Christy would. Yeah. I wrote an actual script. Christy does, we all do our notes differently. We do. And Christy does the full script thing. Mm-hmm. Me and Nick do not. So. Yeah. so I wrote a full script. Yeah. So we'll just be prepared. This is not going to be exactly like what you're used to, but this is what we do when. One of us is out of commission. Yep. This investigation was performed by the Australian Air Safety Investigation Branch, the predecessor to today's ATSB, with the assistance of Aircraft Accident Investigation Branch of Canada and the NTSB of the United States. The 727 was equipped with an FDR that recorded pressure, altitude, indicated airspeed, heading, and vertical acceleration by engraving on a moving stainless steel tape. It was kept in the rear and was undamaged. It was also equipped with the CVR, which records the last 60 minutes of operation. However, hmm. which by the way, Christy said there's a lot of howevers in here. There are. So be prepared. They had flown for 47 and a half minutes after being cleared for takeoff. So the cockpit audio for the significant period prior to the accident was at risk, but it was retrieved. However, the Australian Federation of Air Pilots insisted that the CVR data not be used as its intended purpose was for if the crew were not able to be interviewed. Y'all know post-mortem. Yeah, yeah. If so they died. I I have issues with that because the whole intention there is like they're saying, well, you should really only use the CVR if they're dead. Mm-hmm. Like, don't use it otherwise. It's like, no, an accident actually happened and we have this. We and should we use it to, to help the investigation. It. However, because this is a union we're talking about, they actually got the right and the CVR wasn't allowed to be. Yeah. It, nowadays, we can use the CVR, but it can't be used to prosecute anything. Right. It's not supposed to be a punitive thing, and there's you, reasons for that. There's The only reason they can use it for is like if they need to retrain pilots. Like They need to be like, clearly this didn't work. So we're going to retrain you because you did not do this correctly. Right. And that's an acceptable thing. Yes. That's how you handle things professionally. Yes. This is also 1971. Keep in mind. Yep. So the Department of Civil Aviation agreed to this restriction for the time being, but only with regards to accidents occurring within Australia to Australian registered aircraft. Great. What about the other plane? The DC-8 was equipped with a DeVale recycling flight data recorder but there was a placard indicating it was inoperative or inop yep and the minimum equipment list or the mel for the flight also stated it was inop so they didn't have that recorder no and they didn't it wasn't required obviously for the minimum equipment list no but investigators found that power was available to it and the real break was found in the off position. Because of the possibility of potential data, they sent the recorder to Canada for examination since this type of recorder was not installed on any Australian registered aircraft. So they didn't have the facilities to retrieve the data. However, they found no usable data on it, which it said it was an operative, so that doesn't really surprise Nah, me. it didn't surprise anybody. It was equipped with a CVR and a ground engineer who was traveling on the aircraft and the crew requested that he pull the breakers relevant to the CVR once the flight ceased so as to preserve the relevant data. However, the CVR only contained data from the parking of the aircraft. Turns out the engineer pulled the breakers for the FDR, not the CVR. So the CVR kept recording the whole time they were parked. Yes. Over top of the incident. So we have nothing from the CP aircraft. Nothing. From the DC-8. 
and we only have the FDR from the TAA flight. So investigators put together a chart of events within the three minutes prior to the collision based on the voice recordings from the tower as well as the TAA FDR. It is also utilizes some witness statements. Unfortunately, the investigators did not have to rely on a few assumptions, which every science-inclined person is hesitant to do. Which, yeah, if Assumptions it's not... in aviation are usually not a good thing. No. <laughs> However, in this case, I will caveat and say that they were using a lot of little points of data external mm -hmm. that they had to the actual incident to come together to make... What they had. A congruent idea. Yes. I will let you read into that now because okay. that's there. So number one, it is assumed that the 180 degree turn by the CP air was made with an average nose wheel speed of three knots. Slow. The CPT specifically testified that the DC-8 is a slow moving aircraft on the ground. That's the captain. The captain yes. testified. Captain. Yes. Yeah. It's slow. I am not used to the abbreviations, so excuse me. No, it's okay. So he... And to be fair, this is a DC-8 we're talking about, but it's the long version of the DC-8. Yes. It's a wet runway. And so he did this turn as slow as possible so as not to exit the runway. Yeah. He was particularly careful because of the wet runway surface. They came to the value of three knots because it was slow enough that the aircraft would stay on the relatively narrow runway as well as not slip. So it's like, you don't want a hydroplane. Right. Right? Because that makes stuff dangerous. Mm -hmm. So it's like if you hydroplane in your car, you lose control. And you don't want to do that, especially on a giant aircraft. Yeah. Two, it is assumed that upon completion of the 180-degree turn, the speed of the DC-8 was increased to about 10 knots and did not exceed the speed prior to the collision. Three, it is assumed that the throttle was increased to takeoff power one second after the takeoff clearance was received by the 727 TAA flight. This assumption was to be consistent with the captain's statement that he would be increasing the throttles while the takeoff clearance is being given by the tower controller. Four, it is assumed that at the time just prior to the thrust increases to take off power, the 727 was sitting still with the nose wheel of the aircraft on or very close to the marked threshold of the runway with the engines at idle thrust. The captain stated that he believed that they were still rolling forward when the clearance was given, though he couldn't be sure, and he was certain that they had not crossed the threshold marking before the takeoff power was added. Based on the FDR data from the 727 and the time period between when they entered the runway and when they added takeoff thrust about 47 seconds, it was found to be very unlikely that the airplane was in fact rolling that whole time. Otherwise, they would have been well beyond the threshold marking at nearly any speed by the time that the takeoff power was added. So there's a little map here, and I'm not going to go through all of this right now, but this is just to give you an example of what they're talking about. So you see the line that's across the runway in front of the 727? Yeah. That's where the threshold is painted. Yeah. So they're supposed to land beyond that threshold, basically. That's considered the runway's actual threshold. So that's what they're talking about. The 727 turned onto the mm -hmm. runway and had positioned itself on the center line. There was 47 seconds between the time that it entered the runway and the time that it was given takeoff clearance. Right. So that 47 second period of time, if it had been rolling the whole time, even super slow, it would have gone past that threshold line. Right. And the fact that the captain testified he certainly did not cross that threshold line, and they pretty much proved it with the data, which is coming. There's points still to come. They can determine that the airplane was actually sitting still at the threshold line, basically, when it got the takeoff clearance. Right. Five. Finally, it is assumed that the G trace shown on the speed graph made from the FDR of the 727 showing a deviation of speed of 
152.5 knots just after becoming airborne suggests that this was the moment of impact between the two aircraft. The assumed time of impact based on this data, it was 9.36 p.m. and 31 seconds. Yes. So that was when they determined that the accident actually happened, the collision, because there was a deviation in the speed and they had the specific speed that the 727 was at. It had lost a small amount of speed, basically, in a brief moment. Right. And that was because, I don't know, it came metal-to-metal contact with another airplane. Yeah. <laughs> Turns out that's going to slow you down a little bit. A little bit. Just not, a little bit. Not usually I mean, a good thing. you don't normally hit stuff when you're trying to take off. Uh-huh. I don't understand. Uh-huh. Exactly. Now, all of these assumptions are used to chart and give a relatively accurate idea of the location, position, angle, speed, and trajectories of these two aircraft collided in order to get a better idea of how this accident actually occurred, since there was no other way to confirm these details perfectly accurately, because they didn't have a CVR, right. they didn't have an FDR on the other airplane, and all that stuff. Right, there was nothing, so there was... They used all of this basically to make this chart. And that was kind of what I was showing you, actually, is it's they give you all the points along the way. Right. Where roughly everything was happening. And that's just part of this, but they have a lot more. And it should be on the website for anyone who wants to go look at it. Mm -hmm. Great. So investigators now had enough to determine exactly how the collision occurred. And they were able to verify that the two airplanes did, in fact, collide with one another with one airplane airborne and the other on the ground turned at an angle. Right. Which I don't think that was like... Like a, like a, oh no, that didn't happen. Like, yeah. Right, no. They hit each other. It was pretty obvious. And that's pretty much, yeah, keep reading. This just (laughs) proves that it it did that. Yeah. Okay, that seems pretty obvious and (laughs) self-explanatory. Yes. (laughs) So why did they go through all of this trouble? Well, this data helped to prove a few things about each aircraft that was very important in determining what actually went wrong. Number one. Perhaps, most importantly, this proved that there was an aircraft, the DC-8, that was on an active runway while another aircraft was cleared for takeoff on said runway. And this aircraft was also backtracking down the runway, which like, uh uh-oh, spaghettios. Right. So basically, they proved that there was an airplane where it shouldn't be. Yeah. (laughs) Definitely. When it shouldn't be there. Yeah. The two aircraft were able to see one another. While the DC-8 was maneuvering to avoid a collision, the 727 seemingly made no concerted effort to avoid one, performing a normal takeoff despite the existence of another aircraft on the runway. We kind of talked about this, too, during the story, but sometimes that's the best case scenario. It is, but that is a big can of worms we're going to get into in a little bit. Okay. Four, tail of the DC-8 was struck by the 727 at an angle because of the evasive maneuver made by the DC-8, which narrowly avoided catastrophe in the damage done to the 727. Right. And number five, also perhaps most importantly, the accident was avoidable by both aircraft. Hold on. Wait. It was avoidable by both aircraft, you say? Yes. And at this point alone leads into the why of this accident. So why did this happen? Yep. Well, let's get into it. Well, let's start with the DC-8. The obvious one. It was still on an active runway when another aircraft was taking off, backtracking down the runway. Were the crew doing this for a particular reason? When the tower radio recordings were reviewed, it was found that the tower controller had instructed the flight to, quote, take taxiway right, call on 121.7, end quote. And on the recordings, this was clearly enunciated. The flight crew acknowledged immediately stating, quote unquote, Roger, which indicates that they understood One would assume that this instruction clearly states that they should have exited the runway via a taxiway to the right. However, 
When each one of the four crew members in the cockpit were interviewed, they all stated that they interpreted the instruction to be, quote, backtrack if you like, change to 121.7, end quote. Wait a minute. Huh? Yeah. What? All four of them. Excuse the me? Same statement. Suspicious. How? They all believed that the instruction was pretty much at their discretion to <laughs> turn around and backtrack down the runway. Why would they do that, though? I don't understand. Well, that's why I'm asking. That? Is there ever a situation where you do that? There is. Absolutely, there is. So, but this is not one of them. They were literally <laughs> turning onto a taxiway right. and then completely switched. What do you know? There was conveniently a taxiway right where they were doing this turning around, and yet somehow they decided that turning around was still the better option, and that was what they did. Normally, this kind of instruction, a backtrack, is reserved for runways that don't have parallel taxiways to use. Say they have a turnaround point on the end of the runway or somewhere in the middle of it, and they have to turn around, backtrack down that runway to get to a taxiway. That does happen, and there's plenty of instances of that in the world, but well, this is not one of them. We talked about that with Tenerife, too, because yes. they had to do that because of all the flights that were on the taxiway. Correct. There's a lot of parallels between this and Tenerife that really just shouldn't have been there because it was unnecessary yeah. in this instance. But yeah. <laughs> Tenerife, there was a lot of necessity. This one doesn't involve a lot of necessity. I, I'm so shocked that they were like, yeah, that said bad. They said backtrack. There was no B in any of that. There was no back. Nope. They did not say back at any time. You're correct. I don't know where they got that from. Ah, uh, good but. question. Okay, this was confirmed by the captain's actions in turning the aircraft around, as well as by a radio communication by the first officer to the ground controller just over two minutes later, where he stated, quote, we are cleared to backtrack on the runway, end quote. What in the world, or in my terms, what the f***? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How could they have made that interpretation? That's my question exactly. Yeah, that's the eternal question. Well, a pretty reasonable assumption was fatigue due to the time difference that the very lengthy flight time had yeah. caused. So between traveling halfway around the world and also, I don't know, flying for a very long period of time, it definitely seems like fatigue could be a very big factor in this to me. Did they not have relief crew? So they did. I know they had the check pilot and the second officer, but... Yeah, they did a little bit. I mean, the second officer was kind of the relief crew, so he would back and forth trade, but it's hairy. That still seems sketch, McGetch. Mind you, a lot of the crew time constraints in Canada... That was very different back then. As a oh, matter of well, fact... We had talked about that for Tenerife, too, and Tenerife yes. happened, what, three years after this happened? Something like that. So, And as a matter of fact, Canada only just recently updated their crew times things, and now it's more strict than the United States. So it's kind of a crazy thing, but that didn't really change a lot for a while. I mean, it did. There were some crew time constraint changes over the years, but they really changed big time just a couple of years ago. So hmm. this is back in 1971. We're talking about pretty much flying by whatever they want. Yeah. There's further evidence to this. Why didn't the crew of Canadian Pacific 301 hear the takeoff clearance for TAA 592? Well, when they were given the instruction to change frequency, they did so immediately under the assumption that they should monitor the ground frequency when backtracking down the runway. This was a mistake since taxiing on not across 
an active runway, is typically an area that requires monitoring the tower frequency at most airports around the world for safety. Then and now, that is just kind of the rule. Like, you just, you're supposed to monitor the tower frequency if you're backtracking down a runway or taxiing on a runway, because it's an active runway. Active runway. And the tower's in control of that. Not the ground. Right, exactly. When the instruction was given by the tower controller to change frequencies, it was done so in a normal manner, instructing the crew to change once the aircraft had exited the runway and was on a taxiway instead. Because they changed frequencies immediately, the flight crew did not hear the takeoff clearance for TAA 592. There was one other issue contributing to the Canadian Pacific 301 flight crew's issues at Sydney. Per Australian regulation, any flight crew performing a commercial passenger flight into an Australian airport, the crew must have regular experience flying the route and operating at the airport, operating at the airport at least once in the previous 12 calendar months. Well, it turns out that the captain hadn't flown into or out of Sydney since 1962. Nine years earlier. Yep. An exemption could be filed to allow for him to operate the route, but this was never done. Right. This meant that he was not compliant to file into the airport and may have contributed to his unfamiliarity with the standard airport operations at Sydney. So that's interesting that they even let him fly this flight then if they knew that. So that's just kind of, that was more of almost like a side point. It was like, well, he also just shouldn't have been there. Yeah. (laughs) He also just shouldn't have been flying this aircraft. But also the caveat to that is, well, if they had filed the exemption and they had gotten the exemption... Having been that he had flown into the airport sometime before and he was going to have the charts and things, I don't think it necessarily would have changed the situation they were in. No. But that part of it would have been compliant. So it this was more of a side note of, well, obviously he wasn't familiar because he hadn't. it brought attention to the fact that he hadn't right. flown in there in such a long period of time. But not having the exemption didn't change the situation. Right. So now for the TAA flight crew. This one is very peculiar. This, this is a very particular thing because, okay, obviously the DC-8 was the bigger problem, right? Well, I guess we'll figure that out. Maybe not. It was found that they, most likely, could have just as easily have avoided this accident. But how? The obvious answer is sight. Could they see the other aircraft well enough though it was dark and wet from the rain. Well, Canadian Pacific 301 was found to still have had its landing lights and wing lights on after making the turn and while backtracking down the runway. So, yes, they should have been able to have been fairly obvious. But to that point, the captain of TAA 592 then stated that he saw the airplane at the time of rotation. He stated that he had performed a normal takeoff to avoid over-rotating the aircraft, which could cause a tail strike or a stall. He believed that the safest option was to climb out normally and he would just clear the DC-8, which proved to be a little closer than expected. It was found that the rotation speed and thus rotation were done some nine seconds before the collision. Calculations found that a slightly higher angle of climb out of the 727 may have allowed the two airplanes to clear one another. That seems reasonable enough to figure that more could have been done by the crew of the TAA 592 to avoid the collision, but actually it gets worse. So it does get worse. (laughs) Sure enough. I mean, it definitely seems like, okay, if you, for example, here, they give an idea of how it was climbing out. So the body of the airplane is climbing out on 11 degrees, but it had lifted nine seconds earlier. Yeah. Which 
covering a distance of nine seconds should have been plenty of time for most airliners to clear another airliner nine seconds later. They just weren't, they could have climbed out steeper and they could have cleared the airplane. They determined from calculations that it was possible. He was erring on the side of caution, though, which I understand. But it gets worse. See, on the tower frequency at 9.36 and 12 seconds, there was a voice recording asking, quote, How far ahead is he? End quote. This question was not responded to by anyone on the frequency, and its intention was unclear, but the timing was very important as calculations put this transmission around the time the TAA was moving just 100 knots during its takeoff roll. Investigators needed to determine who made this transition, so they asked the assistance of the NTSB and specifically Mr. R.D. Riddick? I, I don't know. I couldn't determine. Riddick? 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 <laughs> yeah, Riddick? I don't know. The chief of board's audio laboratory. He assisted the investigators by using a voice print sound spectrograph. Yes, that is a thing. Woo! <laughs> to compare the series of transmissions by all aircraft on the tower frequency at the time. It was evidently determined that the voice did originate from the Trans-Australian Airways flight. And worse yet, further analysis found that the voice that made this transition was none other than the captain of said flight. So why did he make this transmission? Well, the 727 had an unfortunate feature that had a regular known issue. All crew members in the cockpit of the 727 wore headsets with boom microphones in order to talk to one another as well as communicate over the radio. In the 727, as with all other aircraft, the crew had to press a button to talk over the radio. However, they also had to press the button to talk to the other crew members over the headset. So they were talking to ATC instead of talking to the crew members. On accident. And it has to do with the design of this one in particular. Keep reading. It's okay. interesting. This is not normal on most aircraft. The big issue with this was that the 727 was a rocker switch on the back side of the yoke. When you press the rocker up, it activates the radio. When you press the rocker down, it activates the microphone communication to the other crew. This is regularly pressed in the wrong direction, inadvertently transmitting over the radio instead of just the other crew. This presumably is why this transmission was made, because this was determined to be around the 100-knot mark of the 727's takeoff roll. That would put the airplane about 10 seconds from rotation and only 2,260 feet past the threshold of runway 16. Calculations performed using similar environment conditions and 727 type certification data found that the airplane could have safely come to a stop on the runway without thrust reversers up to 4,060 feet past the threshold of runway 16. This means that the captain of the trans-Australian flight was referring to Canadian Pacific when he asked, how far ahead is he? Over the radio... Then, he had plenty of time to stop the aircraft on the runway, avoiding the collision completely. The issue is that the captain denied having asked the question and maintained that he didn't see the DC-8 until rotation. So, unfortunately, they couldn't prove that he was talking specifically about the DC-8, but it's pretty much the assumption, since they were on a takeoff roll and that's what they were looking at, right? So... The unfortunate thing is because they found that the voice was his, which he had denied vehemently before... They had pretty much determined it was his voice. Yes. He had denied that it was him, and he was talking about... I mean, at that point, it seemed like he was talking about the airplane ahead of him. Right. And when you look at the map, again, it gives you an idea of just how far away they actually were from the other airplane when he made that call, which is right there 
on the takeoff roll. The other airplane's all the way down here. He had way more than enough time to stop well, that airplane by that point. But, okay, I mean, we've talked about this before. It's easy to play Monday morning quarterback, right? It so is. Maybe he didn't think he had time, or maybe he thought the better option was to take off. And I agree with that, but there's still some amount of... That was still before V1. We could have stopped. He knew something was wrong when there was another airplane on the runway. We're only moving 100 knots. We're before V1. We should stop. That would be the right thing to do. But yes, Monday morning quarterback, yeah, of course. It's like, yeah, but, of course, they should have stopped. But but yes, I understand me, that there was not, still some confusion. Me being a person like, oh, how far ahead? Like, Because it sounds like, how far ahead is he? Mm-hmm. Is he so far that we can stop before right. takeoff? You know what I mean? So right. part of it's like, my brain's like, well, maybe he just thought that they didn't have enough time to stop. But the... Because, I mean, they don't know how long it's going to take them to stop. The runway's wet. It's raining. It's dark. So all of those things, but they still took some of that condition stuff into account. But the bigger problem was where the captain was saying at the moment of rotation is where he noted the other airplane. Whereas this puts it 10 seconds earlier. Yeah. Which was a chunk, a very solid chunk earlier. I think he probably (laughs) did see the DC-8. I I I don't think, you know, I think he... He's trying to cover his butt, right? Like I think yeah. like everyone does in every situation, you don't want to get in trouble. <laughs> right, of course. Right. So I think part of that was like he was trying to cover his butt. He was like, Oh no, I didn't see it till right when we rotated. Like that to me, mm-hmm. that's like actually impossible. You probably saw the aircraft way yeah, before. They saw that it point. well before that. Yeah. Did you think that stopping was an option? Maybe not. But like say that. Don't just be like, hey. Right. You know, whatever. So all of that to say that both aircraft could have avoided this accident. And that's really it. I know that's 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 basically it. Yep. So that's kind of why this is so frustrating, though, is because this one's pretty easily avoidable on both parts. The 727 shouldn't have been rolling while another airplane was on the runway, but the DC-8 shouldn't have been there. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think the other problem, too, and we haven't really talked about this, but they got clearance from ATC they to did. take off. Like, right. it's not like they just went down there and they were like, oh, what are you doing? Like, right. they had clearance. So I think it was also on ATC to wait until that aircraft was fully off the runway right. before they asked the other plane to take off. And that was the whole thing, is the air traffic controller thought that the DC-8 had exited the runway. Well, because I know we talked about that they saw them turn. They saw them turn to the right. But that doesn't mean that they were fully off the runway. Right. That right turn was a part of the very slow 180 degree turn that the airplane subsequently made. The air traffic controller thought that that was the right turn onto Taxiway India and around onto Victor. Right. When actually it was a full 180 on the runway. And that was what really set things in motion was the air traffic controller wasn't paying close enough attention to the fact that this DC-8 wasn't where it was supposed to be. Well, and to be perfectly honest, he saw them turning when they were supposed to turn. Right. So he was like, yeah, except right. he didn't realize that they just turned all the way all around, around and we're not backtracking. just turning off the runway. Right. Well, and we've talked about this before too, but ATC controllers have a ridiculous amount of stuff they have to do. Oh yeah. They take care of a lot of airplanes all at once. Right. They're trying to get everything moving, keep everything moving and going. And so it it doesn't surprise me that he didn't notice soon after that, that the airplane was still on the runway. Right. And the air traffic controller didn't really do anything wrong because they didn't have the data needed to tell where the airplane actually was. He didn't have a ground radar, so he didn't know. And because of that, 
they can only assume, yeah, all of his calls were correct. He didn't do anything wrong. Right. They were all normal calls. Now, I should say, having read the transcript from all these different airplanes, the IATA and the ICAO have changed things a lot. Right. And a lot of these calls that they made have changed a lot because Roger is no longer an acceptable answer to most calls. You have to, like, restate the intention and what the instructions were and your flight number. It's a whole thing. Right. It's a whole thing to be clear about. The intention that what was given exactly to you, that you, you actually understand yeah. the intentions given to you, the instructions given to you. So that was a whole thing here. Is I think that the radio communication was broken down, but it was legal at the time, so you can't really fault it right? either. All right. We're going to take a break. Yep. And we'll come back with all the normal stuff. Some of the normal stuff. Well, yeah. <laughs> hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, we're back. Hello. Hello. So we had a patron of ours mm-hmm. in last weekend, which is why yep. we're recording it this weekend, which is also why Christy is sick. So the probable cause after you go through the yes. stuff is actually going to sound a little different because our patron actually read the probable cause for us. Right. So, yeah, that was read earlier for this as a special thing. So thank you, Tiernan, for reading that. And for now, I'm going to dive into the conclusions. Which is basically the findings, and just so you know, there are no recommendations, but we'll talk about some things that have changed after we go through all this. Excellent. So I'm just going to read these verbatim from the report, because there are a whole eight of them, and they all take up just one page. Oh, dang. I know. How dare you? I know. And otherwise, the second half will seem unnervingly short. (laughs) (laughs) Number one, the flight crews of both aircraft involved in the accident and the air traffic controllers on duty in Sydney Tower were all appropriately licensed for the duties they were undertaking. The pilot in command of the DC-863 aircraft, Charlie Foxtrot, Charlie Poppet, Quebec, however, had not satisfied all of the applicable route and airport familiarization requirements prior to commencing this flight. As in, he didn't have the authorization to actually fly there because he hadn't done it. Yeah. In 12 months. Two, there is no evidence of any defect in either aircraft which could have contributed to this accident. They were fine before they hit. Yes. <laughs> Three, both aircraft were loaded within the safe limits applicable to each, so they were both weight and balance... Just fine. Weight and balance wasn't a problem. Nope. Four, a taxiing clearance, quote, take taxiway right, call on 121.7, end quote, issued by the aerodrome controller to Charlie Foxtrot, Charlie Papa Quebec, as it neared the end of its landing roll, was not given adequate attention by the flight crew, who misread it as backtrack if you like, change to 121.7. The aircraft was then turned through 180 degrees to backtrack on the runway instead of entering an immediately available taxiway as was intended by the aerodrome controller. So, so sorry, I know you're going to get into this, but... No, it's fine. 
I was meant to ask this earlier, but mm-hmm. shouldn't they have given them specific instructions to taxi on Taxiway India? Like, why didn't they no. say get off at Taxiway India? No, not necessarily, actually. Even to this day, this isn't necessarily a thing because should a pilot deem that they can't make a certain taxiway, then it adds communication into the mix that they have to go on to the next one. And it's just a needed communication. So what happens in most cases at most airports is take next available taxiway to the right. That is the correct communication these days. So exit next available taxiway to the right. And then they would exit the runway and then call the ground frequency. Okay. That's what would normally happen in this situation. Take, what is it? Take taxiway right is a very simplified version of that. And while they, so they made a point of this. There's actually on the charts because of the controller's accents at most of these airports. It's actually written in the charts they found that says, if you have trouble understanding a controller, please ask for them to repeat it slowly. It was found that this was enunciated well enough that it should have been understood on the recording. It was very clear. What we don't know is how it was heard in the cockpit. Yeah. In the cockpit, it may not have been, right. It may not have been as clear in the cockpit, which is why they may have heard like backtrack instead of Take taxi. Yeah, take taxi, which... With an accent, I don't know how that sounds. I don't know how that would have been misconstrued. I don't know. I feel like even with an Australian accent, that's pretty clear. Somehow, some way, they misconstrued this. And on top of that, it's the fact that not only do they not have that recording, but all four of them misconstrued it, which means... And they all testify the same, which means there must have been... Some kind of it must have sounded some other way, weird way, yeah. In the cockpit, that's the only thing that the, they can think. It's only because all four of them were like, "Yeah, that's right. what happened." The only other thing I could think about, and this is pretty nefarious, and I don't think people are this nefarious, but they like, are done goofed. Yeah. Well, they they're like, guys, we need to make sure our story's straight. You know what I mean? Right. Like, yeah. We yeah. Of say course. all the same things, so we don't get in trouble. Of course, but they brought that up too because they brought up the fact that it was there was evidence to the fact that. Multiple of them believed this Yeah, when they heard it because the captain did the 180 degree turn. And then after two minutes, the first officer made a call over the radio when they were being questioned about being struck. Right. He said, well, we were instructed to backtrack down the runway. So we were backtracking down the runway. That's what he said over the radio. So two of them now proved that that's what they heard out of four. And they were the two that were in control. So. Right. (laughs) So that was a whole thing. Five. The aerodrome controller, or the tower controller, did not recognize the difficulties of visual perception in the circumstances that prevailed, and this, in conjunction with the slow maneuver of the aircraft on the runway, as well as its direction of movement and position in relation to the taxiway entrance, led him to believe that the DC-8 had taxied off the runway in accordance with the instructions issued. So, again, it's that whole perception at night, wet, in the dark, airplanes far away. Uh Uh-huh. You see him make a turn. And it looks like he turns at a taxiway. Right. And he does. <laughs> but he turns around yeah. at that taxiway. He doesn't go on to the taxiway. He kept going. He just right. kept going. He just kept going all the way around. He just didn't look at him long enough. Right. <laughs> now, did they have like a clear view? It's perceived that they must have had a pretty decent view. He could see the airplane's lights and everything just fine. There was just quite some distance between him and the airplane. So it was hard. And there's actually a picture of this. But I'm not going to get into that right now because point is, he didn't see it. He didn't know that's what happened. It's okay. Six, the tower controller issued to the 727 a clearance for takeoff when the runway was still obstructed by the DC-8. Yes. 
Yes, he did. Not knowing. <laughs> seven. The flight crew of the 727 stated that at the commencement of their takeoff, they did not observe the DC-8 on the runway as an obstruction. Nevertheless, the DC-8 was observed at a time when the takeoff could have been abandoned with safety. The pilot in command of the 727 elected to continue the takeoff and attempted to overfly the obstructing aircraft. Again, they believe that he, when he stated at 100 knots, how far ahead is he? That was plenty of time to stop, and he chose not to. And that still kind of raised some red flags, but again, they they didn't really pin this on either flight crew because a lot of just misunderstandings were had, yes. and nobody died. Nobody was even injured, so. And finally, eight. Although the obstructing aircraft could have been cleared quite safely by the adoption of a steeper initial climb angle, the pilot in command of the 727 adhered to the normal takeoff technique, and the underside of his aircraft came into collision with the tail fin of the DC-8. Although substantially damaged, the 727 continued in flight, and after dumping fuel, landed at Sydney Airport again without further damage. Although they did drop some parts on some houses just a few miles from the airport oh, when they nice. were on approach. Yeah, they just... Yeah, I love when that happens, because it's like, oh, look... There's a piece of aircraft yeah. in my front yard. Nothing like just finding pieces of airplane in your front yard when you get there. Or that struck your vehicle. Right. Yeah, that has happened here. Or yep. uh, ruined your roof. Yep. That's happened here. Triple yep. seven. We'll talk about that one someday. <laughs> someday when we have the actual report for it. Right. So, and when they, it was funny because the, there's a whole thing that I didn't read, but when there was a report that the two airplanes might have struck one another. The DC-8 taxied on. Well, the airport authority ran out there as fast as they could to see if there was anything left. And sure enough, hundreds of parts of airplane <laughs> of airplanes were strewn all over Taxiway India and the runway. So they very quickly cleared all of that while other traffic was flying around. And then they allowed the 727 to come back and land. And it did so safely. But the problem with that was they moved all of those parts before the investigators ever got to get there right. and see it. So they didn't have an accurate idea of just how. Where exactly all that How the two airplanes was. impacted. Yeah. They managed to put it all together somehow, but it was still, that was one part that just also hampered the investigation. It was like, well, they moved all of the stuff. Well, <laughs> the to large be fair, piece of tail. It was an active runway <laughs> and they needed to get it out of the way. Like we covered yeah. like. Uh, yeah, exactly. If you remember the, uh, the Concorde where uh, it exploded. <laughs> Fire. Right. <laughs> Due to contamination on the runway. Right. From a DC-10. Yep. <laughs> yep. So, just saying. Just saying. Little bit not great having some stuff on the runway. Right. And now for our probable cause verbatim, as usual, read by our special guest and patron, Tiernan. The cause of this accident was that the taxiing clearance given for after landing was misread by the flight crew of CFCPQ, and this error was not detected by the aerodome controller who cleared the VHTJA for takeoff. The flight crew of VHTJA on detecting the obstructing aircraft did not then adopt the most effective means of avoiding a collision. Thank you, Turnin, for reading Thank you, that. Turnin. That was a probable cause. So now let's talk about some of the things that have changed because there are no recommendations and that just kind of blows my mind because it's an old report though. It is an old report, but we're also talking about Australia, the same place that before this was like, we need to have flight data recorders and cockpit voice recorders and it has to happen. And yeah. legally they made, they were the first place to make that happen. Yep. So they should have been able to do a lot more about this to avoid things like Tenerife. Yeah. There's plenty of instances before Tenerife that were like, we should have avoided Tenerife, but this is also one of them. <laughs> True. Things that have changed, for one, backtracking down runways just isn't common unless it's absolutely charted. Right. And there are airports where this is charted. So that's a big thing. Two, 
having the crew standardized flying into a certain location, you're supposed to review all the documents before you get there. Three, communication, obviously, so much more clear. Yeah. You wouldn't just have take taxiway right. You would have exit first taxiway to the right. And then they would probably have to repeat the instruction, right. after which... Right, exactly. And then probably told, after you are in a taxiway, transfer to frequency such and such to contact the ground and controller. Right. So, and that's usually how it goes. So... It's also standard practice, and not to say it wasn't then, because it was, but it's standard practice, and now it's very much part of CRM, that you don't change to that ground frequency until you are clear of the runway. Right. For sure. And the only instance where you can be on a runway and talking to a ground frequency is when you are, you have already been on a taxiway, you are actively talking to that ground controller, they have not instructed you to talk to the tower, and they've told you to cross a runway while en route taxiing to another runway or to parking or to whatever. And that is the only instance when you are crossing a runway and talking to a ground controller already, that's the only instance when you can talk to a ground controller on an active runway. Well, and in this instance, they really shouldn't have. Well, and you you even pointed that out in the analysis when you Mm -hmm. did the analysis, like they weren't crossing a runway. Right. They were on it. They were on the runway. Right. They were on a runway. So, and this was already pretty much in place then too. Like this isn't change. This is a safety thing and it should have been well known. So that's a whole thing. And ground radar. That fixes a lot a of lot problems, of stuff, too, because then you know where the airplane are. In the are. tower, they're like, oh, hey, there's an airplane there. Hey, wait, hold up. Don't take off yet. Yeah, don't hold take on. off. This idiot just turned around on the runway. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and now we have to get them off before you can take off. Right. On top of that, there was a lot of other little things. I mean, obviously, having crew resource management probably would have made a lot of coordination in both of these cockpits a little better yes. to avoid the issues. Now, not having the cockpit voice recorders on either one of these made it an issue because we don't know what was said during both of these times for both flights. So that's an issue. But regardless, the 727, there was a couple of things that I still think, yeah, they were at fault too. They really shouldn't have taken off. When you can see there's another airplane on the runway. I'm sorry, but you can. You can see it. It's there. It's right there. The lights are on. It's there. <laughs> it's there, Linda. It's well, there. Maybe maybe they thought it was like a, a mirage. A I don't mirage. Know. I don't know. Something. <laughs> they thought it was a something. So, I don't know. That's, that's a lot of the stuff that's changed in the time since then. But also, I mean, there's just so many things. I mean, it's a very different world we're flying in now and handling now. It's not to say... Runway incursions don't happen all the time because they do, but they tend to end up even safer than this one did because there's a lot of other things in place to keep this from happening. So this instance really doesn't happen anymore unless under a very rare circumstance. Yes. But this this just doesn't happen at any major airport or even minor airport, honestly, in most places in the world because it just there's all the equipment in place and it's just not possible. All the regulations that are, that are there. So this is a pretty rare instance, but... This, too, was just so interesting because obviously everybody was safe, so it's not a super well-known incident. But it's pretty freaking crazy. The 727 took (laughs) off and lost a whole part of its fuselage. Well, and we, I mean, you think about that, and then you think about what happened with UA-232 when they lost hydraulics. And you're like, well, at least they had backups. (laughs) Yeah. Because the other one didn't end very well. Right. Right, exactly. Now, this could have been so much worse. So much worse. They, Like I said, they could have collided like they did in Tenerife. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it would have been catastrophic. I mean, Mm -hmm. many people would have lost their lives. Like Tenerife, which is why Tenerife is the worst aviation accident in history. It is, absolutely. It's been close to being outdone. It has. But it has 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 not. It has not been outdone. 
thankfully. And yeah. I probably won't ever be. Good God. Thanks to regulations and stuff. Yeah. So that was Trans-Australian Airways Flight 592 and Canadian Pacific Airlines Flight 103. 301. 301. Damn it. 301. Almost. You were so close. So close. It's okay. Okay, Perfect. so let me read the trivia questions. Not a lot of people answered the trivia questions this month, but... That's okay. Here's the trivia questions. Maybe you can try to answer them. I don't... You might know... No, you might know not know any of these. Actually. Yeah, you might not None know of these of are these. about me, so... What yeah, well then. But... Okay, so what was the alcoholic beverage that Miranda spilled on the mixer? This happened literally two years ago. <laughs> we'll let you guess. What do you think she spilled on a mixer? What is what would be her drink of choice to spill on a mixer? Is it a mixed drink or is it you, mi- you mixing drinks on a mixer? Okay. <laughs> no, it is alcohol though. Like a, maybe a whiskey. No, it was red wine. It was red wine. Oh, gross. It that was, was the old mixer. We had the old mixer. We were also at it, it wasn't like this. We had like tray tables. Mhm. And they were I, super wobbly. And my the mixer was on mine. It lived on my table usually. Right. And so when we were at the apartment, not here, and I literally jiggled the thing too much, and it <laughs> right on the it mixer. Right over on the mixer. And the I mixer was, lived. It did for like another year and a half. It made weird noises <laughs> the first time we used it. After that, like it made weird gurgly noises over the headphones. But then it was fine. Listen, it was just a little bit drunk. It's fine. Yeah, yeah it was fine. It was okay. a dry wine, so <laughs> it was a dry. <laughs> That was funny. That was funny. Yeah. Okay. What is Nick's favorite color? Ooh, and some people didn't get this. No. So actually, the one person that answered mm-hmm. mixed it up with my favorite color. <laughs> yeah, they did. Yeah. Is yeah. it blue? It's not blue. Damn. Oh, wow. We actually, we all have our favorite colors, favorite colors on well, our... kind of. Christie's is kind of. Yeah, kind of. It's as close as um, we get. It's red. For those of you who don't know, yep. it's red. So our chords and everything and, and our mixer colors and everything are all tied to our, our favorite, favorite colors. colors. So as best as we could anyway. So what is Nick's favorite type of hard seltzer? This one was hard. Unless yeah, this one is hard because I don't talk about that very much because I don't no. drink. <laughs> like rarely ever. Yeah. It's like the margarita trulies. Yep. Any of the margarita truly. Oh, I mean, truly's in general are good, but like the margarita ones are so good. I, yeah, the margarita truly's, I like those. I don't know. I, I have no problems with those. The lime one tastes like a margarita. Mm-hmm. There's no tequila in it. That's my favorite part. And I don't like, <laughs> but the weird thing is like, I don't, I don't go out of my way for like a margarita. I don't mind them, but I like the margarita truly better. I think it's just easier to it's drink just, than a margarita. It's so good. And then who is Paige? Paige is our editor. Yeah, Paige's our editor. They are the ones that do all the magic now. Yep, Paige's our editor, and they're the person who also ships everything to you now. Yeah, so, so if you're a patron or if you've ordered ducks, then you've... you've probably got something that was sent by Paige. Yep, in the last few months. Paige's our executive assistant. That's like Pretty much. their official title as yep. our executive assistant, but they mostly do editing. Yep. And then sending out stuff for Patreon and things like that. Yep, Paige is fantastic, so thank you, Paige. <sighs> Paige, you're the best. You You treat us way more... Way nicer than we deserve. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's fair. All right. Next month will be a different set of trivia questions. We made a list of them, and I don't know. Maybe I'll ask you a few of them about me. Maybe you can figure out what they are. But we'll get none of them right. Uh, you <laughs> might get a couple of them right. To be I hope fair, you get some. Andrew and I have only known each other for like almost six months now. So mm-hmm. it's not like he knows my life story or anything. Although I talk a lot, so maybe you do know my life story. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. 
We appreciate you. Thank you to our patrons. You guys are awesome. But thanks to everybody for listening. We appreciate you. Thank you for emailing us and like giving us recommendations and stuff. Yeah, we've actually gotten a lot of recommendations. We're getting really from close. like new people. We're like, yeah. yay, new people. Yeah, new people. If you're new, like email us. Let us know who yeah. you are. I love hearing from new people. We are finally creeping pretty close to that year mark, and I still want to cross it one of these days. We're I so think, close. Here. I think we could cross that let year me, mark. Let me look. Let me look and see how far we are out now. Okay, because I know we, that there's still a. We, there's still a couple added we need to add. some. And I think there's still a couple that we need to add. I know uh, that Tiernan has one that he wants on there. Give me a sec. So we are currently scheduled out till October 10th, 2023. Okay. So we're so getting we're, there. We're, we're a couple there. months behind still, but we also need to put some more stuff on here that right. we did not do the other day. So there you go. Please feel free to send in recommendations. Please do not feel like you have to. However, we do understand that some of you are like, I don't know. Right. And that's okay. (laughs) Send in your stories. Check out the Patreon page if you're not currently in Patreon. uh, And check out the merch page because there's merch. Yep. And uh, hey, you know what? Big holidays coming up. That's right. Christmas. Christmas. (laughs) Christmas. Get yourself something for Christmas. That's right. Or not. That's up to you. But whatever. Whatever you feel like. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you have a safe and healthy week and we'll catch you all next week. Keep your your speed up. up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy and edited by the lovely Paige. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.